All right, everybody. Hello, this is Abby Alcox with Badgerland Journal, and today I have another guest. Two guests in a row. It's very exciting. So our guest is CJ Hansen. He is another teacher that I work with at my student teaching placement. DC Everest High School. Shout out to the Evergreens. It's good to be here, Abby. It's going to be a, a fun conversation. Yeah, I'm super excited for it. And the reason CJ is here is because he actually is the one that gave me this idea for this podcast. So we're going to be talking about one of the only pirates on the Great Lakes today. I happened to find out about Dan Seavey um, when my family was camping at Peninsula State Park in Door County. We had gone to Cana Island Lighthouse, which is a really cool place. Check it out, listeners. Um, and while we were there, one of the volunteer staff that was there uh, started telling us the story about Dan Seavey. We were talking about all the ships that had been kind of wrecked off the coast of this island and why like the waters around Door County could be dangerous and the lighthouse that, you know, the lighthouses there that exist. And then thought he, you know, he wanted to tell us this cool story. And my family was very engaged and he told us about Dan Seavey. And um, I don't know, like a month or two ago, I was talking to Abby here and uh, kind of told her, hey, do you know about this guy? And uh, kind of told her a little bit of the background and she was very intrigued and did some research. And now we are here ready to talk about it. Yeah. How great is that? Well, he's a very colorful character. And I think by the end of it, you're not really sure what you're going to make of him. Um, you know, whether he was the scoundrel, you know, had no ethics, if he was a good guy all along, or if, you know, maybe he probably was somewhere in between there. When I first heard the story, I thought this should be a movie. Like, 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 honestly, uh, when I first heard about Dan CV, I'm like, man, this sounds like straight out of a Hollywood script, this guy and what he's done and the adventures he had and like, what he was involved in. I'm, I think there could be a pretty cool movie about this. Well, he was involved in a lot of just different occurrences, had his, you know, finger in multiple pots. And some of the people he met along the way and he had relationships with. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. So to start off with, Dan Seavey was born in 1865 in Maine. And this is kind of important because even though he spent a lot of time in Wisconsin, he still had that heavy New England accent that made him stick out. And he was a big guy when he got to be an adult. He was 6'4", 250 pounds. He was a towering man, a giant. Yeah. So stu stood out, right? Not someone you'd want to mess with necessarily. No. And from the beginning, he was really involved with shipping. His dad was a schooner captain, and he himself began working on vessels at age 13. So this was in 1878. He, so he grew up with water in his background, yeah. right? Like being on the water. So... Not really that surprising. He enters the Navy three, for three years. And this is from 1883 to 1886. And then after he leaves the Navy, he becomes a deputy marshal for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so, and this is kind of interesting for what he becomes later on, but he's like in charge of finding bootleggers and smugglers who are using reservations to kind of profit from these maybe not legal, you know, selling alcohol or smuggled goods. And he's tracking them down and arresting them. Um, and he even has one story where he was tracking a smuggler who he found in Nabinwe. Nabinwe? 
Sure. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, guys. Pronunciation is not my strong suit. You'll find that in this podcast. Um, but the smuggler claimed Lawman, the Lawman, which was CV, could not win in a fist fight with him. And you'll find later that CV is not one to back down from a fight. And so he took up the challenge and fought for hours. And it ended up with him tipping a piano over on the smuggler. Oh, geez. Uh, so Dobbin Way is in Michigan. Uh, that's where he found him. Uh, yeah, this guy. Uh, so Dan Seavey, this is just where part of his legend begins, right? Like he yeah. is this brawler. He like actually looks forward to it, almost like kind of wants this to happen yeah. to be the end result, you know? So he is ready to just throw down with this dude and, and whoop him. And he does. Well, and it's kind of funny because he's a little bit nonchalant about it because the smuggler ends up dying after having a piano dropped on him, which... Which, you know, piano on you, probably not going to, you know, feel too good. No, do, do not a little at bit all. Of, do a little bit of damage. Well, you know? medicine is not the same as it is today. Correct, correct. And so then CV sends a telegram back to the head office and it says, outlaw expired while resisting arrest. Yeah, that doesn't really um, explain the details at all, but it does tell the story a little bit, right? Like, yeah. you know, hey, uh, this guy died and he was resisting. So, you he's know, he's not exactly lying. He's just omitting some finer details. Like, I kicked the crap out of him and then dropped a piano on him. So, yeah. yeah. Not sure if the Bureau of Indian Affairs would really appreciate him dropping pianos on smugglers, but. But he did. <laughs> but he did. And he got away with it. So his arrival to the Midwest, because he started off in Maine, but this job with the Bureau of Indian Affairs brought him to Wisconsin. That or the Navy. There's, And we'll find that a lot with his life. There's a little bit of uh, blurriness of what happens mm -hmm. when. And so one of these, either the Navy or this, the Indian Affairs, brings him to Wisconsin around the 1880s. And there he meets and marries 14-year-old Mary Plumley. And I think he's in his 20s at this point. Yeah, and so pretty young yeah. girl, uh, 14, although at that time not super like rare or yeah. like super weird. But um, they had a couple of kids together, two daughters, um, bought a small farm, uh, interest in waterfront saloons in Milwaukee. That was kind of like part of his business as well. Um now, this is where he actually meets and becomes um, almost like quasi-partners with, from my understanding, with Frederick Pabst of Pabst Brewery. Yeah, and so, and this is kind of the tricky part, is there's a lot of connections to him or supposed connections, but sometimes those are harder to nail down. Confirm, yeah. nail down. Because we'll see later on, there's like a legend that his ship that he used used to be part of the Pabst family ships. Yes. But looking into that, the records don't necessarily show it, but we also know that records weren't kept as organized or, you know, neat as it is today. And so things sometimes can happen, but it's harder to prove that yeah. beyond the rumors. And the interesting part is the, the man who is telling the story about CV that my family heard mentioned you know from his research um that cv and paps were business partners for a little while um and then paps 
basically stop the the business doing some business on the Great Lakes with shipping uh, to to basically focus on brewing beer, yeah. which is interesting because we, you know, most listeners probably can recognize Paps Brewery, right, yeah. or Paps Beer, uh, which is pretty interesting to have Frederick Pabst as your business partner for a little while. Yeah, that's kind of big time. Well, and it's actually Pabst who kind of pushes him into his next phase of life. There we go. And he's encouraging him to invest in Alaska, mining in Alaska, because there is this huge, like, Klondike boom happening where they found gold. People are Mm -hmm. rushing to Alaska to be a part of this. And so... And this is kind of one of those areas where, again, maybe CB wasn't the best guy in the Hawaii world because he sold all of his Milwaukee properties, left his family, didn't tell him where he was going, and moved to Klondike, which was in the Yukon Peninsula in Alaska. And there's not a whole lot of records of where exactly he went, how successful he... Well, actually, we know how successful he was. Which as was not, not successful. <laughs> um, but we don't really know his path, who he interacted with. We just know he went missing for a while. He was in Alaska. In Alaska. It didn't work out. No. He didn't find any gold. He lost basically all his money. Yep. And so he returns to Milwaukee, but he did not return to his family. So he leaves his wife and children, does not go back to them. No. And so Mary, his wife, actually spends years looking for him, like almost five years. And she finds him bartending in Milwaukee, which I'm sure that was... I would have been peeved. Yeah. Uh, she changes her last name eventually. So she's no longer Mary Seavey. Um, she, they don't stay together. But it's interesting. So I want you to know, she changes her name to Mary Silver. Because that actually comes back later. Yeah. Mary's not done with our story yet. No, she is not. But for the time being, she is. Yes. Because in the year 1900, now in Escanaba, Michigan... Mr. CV here marries another woman, which so, I don't think he ever fully divorced. No. Mary, he, which is also interesting in this story. He kind of doesn't really divorce any of them. No, he doesn't, but he does <laughs> marry a few. And in this case, he marries Zilder Bisner. Uh, now, she does file for divorce within four years. Um, yeah, he. she had claims that he was beating her, threatening her, tried to kill her. There's no really substantiated claims beyond her saying this. So I, you know, I probably could go either way, but he flees. He denies it all. He says, I never touched her. But But we do know that he's a rough and tumble guy and he's around bars a lot because he works in them. Which, you know, alcohol can cause people to, you know, it's not far-fetched to say that maybe he did. Yeah. But we don't no. know for sure. And the only reason I say that is none of the other wives ever claim this. That's true. But so it's like something you just gotta it's something to discuss and understand. But CV but and but CV just he flees. He gets yes. out of Dodge. He he does not go back to, to Zilder Bisner. Yeah. After you know, so four years together, she files for divorce. That doesn't actually come to fruition because he just disappears. Yeah. And he later reappears and marries again. So again, he never signs divorce papers for either of these wives. So he marries this woman named Annie Bradley. They're in the Upper Peninsula. Um, and This lasted until she died. So this was one that kind of stuck around, stuck around yeah. for a while. 
No, and it's actually interesting. I read that Annie Bradley, um, her father, was really well known in Gills Rock. Oh, like he Gills was a, Rock, Door County. Yeah, and he was very well known. I think he might have been a wrestler, or like I mean, like a oh. fighter. Yeah, I mean, like he was just well known in the area, kind of a local hero. Oh, that's cool. And so to marry her, I think was looked well upon. Sure. At least for him, maybe not for her, since uh, Stevie's not exactly the most uh, lawful man in the whole wide world. Um, but he has businesses in Michigan, and some of them were legal, and <laughs> some of them were maybe less than legal. Um, so he would be transporting, um, trapping, and logging lumber throughout Lake Michigan. He would also do prize fighting, which... Which is not too surprising, since he likes a good fight. <laughs> yes. Uh, sounds like, from my research, he didn't really lose. No. No. He basically won a lot of money by beating up people. Yeah. 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 I mean, and we'll get into some of those fights in just a little bit. Um, But he would would not turn down a fight. He's definitely one of those people that, if challenged, is not going to say Not going to back down. And he also, his less than legal businesses was, you know, smuggling, poaching cargo, bootlegging, and pimping. Because I did hear that... Um, one of the ways that um, getting away with prostitution at that time, if you had a ship, you pulled into port, you got some ladies on board, and you brought men on your ship, and you'd go off a little bit offshore, conduct the business, go back to shore, drop everybody off. Yes. This was one of the ways, like floating bordellos, if you will, that was was happening and this was pretty common on the great lakes yes and so he partook in this with his ship and the idea is that law enforcement their authority ended at the water correct now one of the things i want to mention about the poaching i don't know if we're coming back to this actually or not but um some of the islands around um you know lake michigan um he would go to like rock island Washington Island, and he would poach animals off of those islands, bring them on his ship, go to Chicago and sell the meat there. Oh, That's one of the things he would do I did not find with that. the poaching. Yes. Interesting. Especially, I love Washington and Rock Island, so yes. I didn't, I think that's a cool connection. Um, but he, whether it was for his legal businesses or his less than legal businesses, he was recognized at most ports. And throughout the Great Lakes. part of that, too, is the fact that he's this giant of a man. So he does stick out very easily. So when he pulls into port, people know Roaring Dead and Seavey's around. Yes. Um, so talking about his fighting kind of prowess, in Manistee, there was a local fighter who was looking for a new competition. And we already mentioned that, and this is in Michigan, um, that Seavey does not turn down a fight. And so he went there, fought, and won before the police could assess the damage. So this makes me think that this was not just a normal fight (laughs) where, you know, it's just between these two men. It sounds like there might have been some property damage going on. And maybe he beat this man to a body pulp, too. Who knows? Yeah. And then there's also um, in 1904 in Frankfurt, Michigan, that he won a prize fight with money. Um against Mitch Love, who was a well-known prize fighter at the time. And they said it was held on ice, 200 people watching, mm. and it went on for two hours. And once again, CV won. 
can you imagine beating someone for two hours, like just throwing haymakers at each other for two hours? And this is not like with gloves and in a ring. This is like bare knuckle brawling. In the middle of winter. In the middle of winter on ice and a bunch of people watching. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure it was like not like great rules. Like, you know, like it was probably some pretty dirty fighting, right? Like this is like basically you beat the person till they can't move anymore and are or are unconscious or give up and so that's pretty intense yeah well and the one thing that we do have to note and not to say this didn't happen but we don't actually have any record of mitch love ever being in frankfurt michigan so whether or not this fight happened it could have happened maybe it was maybe not mitch love maybe it did happen and it wasn't written down or mitch love was so beat up that he didn't actually make it to the bar that night to you know partake so yeah so but it's one of the well-known stories that follows dan seavey so so far dan seavey we know has been in the navy has been um doing business around the great lakes some of it legal some of it not and we also know that he was in alaska failed business there and finally he fought a lot of people yes won and made money that way and he has a couple more questionable escapades and you actually were mentioned this to me when you were telling me this story, but he would do what is called the moon cussing, where he would lure ships off course, either by putting out fake like sea lights mm -hmm. to help guide the ships, really guide them into treacherous waters. Rocks where would... or, yeah, the shore. Yeah. Or he would, so he'd either put them out or he would put fake ones on there to guide them the wrong direction. Correct which I had never heard about before, but kind of seems ingenious. It, yeah. I mean, Dan Seavey was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a pretty smart businessman. Yeah. But he would board the ships when they would crash and then steal their cargo. And thus making him basically a pirate. Yes. And, oh, and he gets even more pirate-like later on. Yay. Um he was said to be, and these are kind of the unsubstantiated claims, but his legend has grown, and so these follow him. So it says he was extremely violent, fired cannons on ships um, belonging to different like fishermen, and killing everyone on board. There's absolutely no record that he was ever charged with murder. You know, I, I have a hard time believing these, just mm -hmm. because if he was boarding ships and killing the crew there'd be more of a record. There'd be uh, more yeah. of a chase for it. Of course. And he was also said to have kidnapped frontiers women and put them into prostitution. Again, I think this might be an exaggeration from him having a floating bordello. Correct. Like, I believe that part, him kidnapping people, I feel a little bit less confident about. I also feel like there would have been more um, stories about that from women or you know like yeah. there'd be more records maybe of people claiming that or whatever but. yeah he was a great shot he carried a handgun with him at all times um partially because he's participating in illegal activities sure which is. sometimes brings less than savory characters to your door and so he would have like an illegal fish trap offshore and other poachers would come by and try and steal his illegal poaching setup and so he, a bell would ring when someone was near, and then he would ch shoot into the water near the poacher to discourage thieves. So, you know, he's a pretty good shot to scare them off, but not actually shoot them. 
Yes. But he also, and this one kind of makes me laugh. He kind of started this rumor. He has T-sales multiple schooners in his lifetime, but his most famous one is the Wanderer. And this is the one I mentioned that was possibly owned by the Pabst family. Correct. And oftentimes he would spend most of his time on Lake Michigan, specifically around Green Bay, when he was um, for maritime trading, selling cargo, whether it was legal or illegal. But then, so there is a specific incident that lay, that creates this pirate of the Great Lake. And it has to do with his ship and another ship called the Nellie Johnson. So he was arrested for piracy on June 11th, 1908. And this is because Seavey and two other men stole the schooner, um, the Nellie Johnson. And Captain R.J. McCormick, along with federal authorities, pursued him to get this ship back. And this is a little bit disputed, at least by Seavey, whether he really stole the ship. Because in his words, he won it in a bet. Or in a game. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, that's an awfully big prize to win a whole flipping uh big ship you know like uh that's a awfully high stakes if you're gambling okay uh so again seems a bit um far-fetched but you know people gambled away lots of things at that time so possible well and so what really cv did was he approached the captain and his crew at a local saloon and he had this big jug of booze and what he did is he befriended the crew and offered to share his alcohol. This is a classic tale. We've heard it many times. <laughs> We've seen it in movies. Let's get them drunk and take advantage of yeah. them. Well, you know, he's acting like he's drinking along with them, but he's not drinking. Well, probably not too well, much. Well, maybe he's drinking, but maybe not in excess like he's having them drink and getting them completely drunk yeah. and smashed. And at his worst of the story, he pushes them into the water. I don't think that's true. I think he probably just left them drunk. It sounds to me like most accounts are he left them passed out in the bar and went and took their ship. Pretty much. And so, like I said, he says he won the ship fairly questionable. But he takes the schooner and heads to Chicago to try and sell the cargo. However, this fails. I don't know what happened, but Chicago didn't want this cargo. Maybe they knew it was real a real hot ship didn't want to touch it so he starts traveling up um the eastern shore of wisconsin up to the up and the federal ship the tuscarero pursued cv with a the captain of the ship preston uberoth uberoth and mccormick the captain of the nelly johnson and deputy marshal tom Curier. He had the, it was claimed he had an arrest warrant for piracy. And we will talk about how that is also a little bit Questionable. Yes. Um, and because piracy means he stole a ship, right? Like that's where they're getting him on the piracy. Or yes. was it that he tried to steal the ship and cargo and sell it? Like, I can't remember exactly the details, but bottom line is, because he stole this ship, essentially, that's the claim, I believe, why he's considered a pirate. Like yes. it was a pirate action. Yes, it was taking of the ship and its cargo. The only one officially claimed to be a pirate on the Great Lakes, by the yeah, way. Yeah, because I'm sure there was a lot of bootlegging going on. Probably some people taking some cargo maybe they weren't supposed to. Sure. But 
this was him taking a ship and cargo purposefully. And trying to sell <clears throat> said cargo to yeah. profit. The Tusker... Tuscarero. The Tusker... The Tuscarero. The ship this, called the Tuscarero. Yeah, this was the fastest ship at the lake, on Lake Michigan at the time. And so it said that it was stopping at every port and backwater in search of CV. However, this was a slow endeavor. So they started notifying lighthouses and different life-saving stations, telling them, hey, look out for him. And as we mentioned, he is known. He's a well-known guy. Everywhere. People are going to find him. So Frankfurt, Michigan reports that CV was there and the Nellie Johnson was hidden in a nearby river. And he's been to Frankfurt before, so he's, you know, a familiar character there. Yeah. And so the pursuing ship stops in Manistee to refuel. And then in the cover of night, went to Frankfurt to try and catch CV. And they kind of wanted to avoid him being notified or warned. That's why they go at night. Yes. They try to sneak up to get him, right? Yeah. To capture him. And it is said that he attempts, CV attempts to flee. And the marshals took chase. Supposedly, the chase ends with the cannon hitting the wanderer. <clears throat> so he tries to make a run for it with the wanderer. Their ship is giving chase, right? Yep. The, the authority's ship is giving chase. Possibly with a, a cannon fired shot to like say, hey, you need to stop. Yes. Right now. And so then the lawmen board the wanderer and arrest CV. Story that everyone's being told. Now I've been told by my source here in yes. Door County that what happened is because he tried to sell the goods in Chicago, the trial took place in Chicago. I believe so, because it's the Chicago Tribune that is reporting on CB. I also want to mention that because Chicago is a port where um, CV has done a lot of sales in the past, including the hay for horses, and also including a lot of the poached animals that he would sell uh, for meat, you know, with their meat to markets there, that the Chicago mob bosses got word of what CV was doing and wanted to get in on the action. It's happening in their city. Someone's making money illegally. Um, hey, that's our job. We want a cut. We want a piece of the action. So it said that um, CV had a deal with the mob bosses of Chicago that they would get a cut and they'd kind of take care of CV if anything happened. That leads up to this trial because yes. I think there are some things that we could possibly connect to that being true. Yeah. And I didn't find that in my research, but I'd be interested in your, the guide who was talking to you, the, his research as well. Um, but there are questions about what happened in this trial because it leaves a couple people scratching their heads. Correct. Which is why, again, there might have been some foul play here yes. involved. And, you know, we're not going to, mobs are smart enough not to leave a lot of connection. But we do know that they align the pockets of lots of law officials yes. to get away with things. And but, especially in the city of Chicago, which is notorious for having a lot of that going up. Yes. So June 30th, CV is arraigned for charges of mutiny and sedition on the high seat. And this is not piracy. And we do speculate that possibly the original arrest warrant did have piracy written on it but it was destroyed we have no record of it but a lot of times charges will be changed by the time of arraignment 
based on the severity, the cooperation, whatever. and what they think they can get, get them convicted on. on. Yes, correct. And so the grand jury ends up failing to indict. And this trial received a lot of coverage at the time. And so some say that CV's lawyers were well-connected in Chicago's legal community and pulled some strings for his release, which, you know, very well could have been tied to the mob. Uh, yeah, that's what it sounds like maybe happened. These lawyers actually, from what it sounds like, may have been lawyers that represented some of those men Yeah, uh, in Chicago. So others say that he was a seaman on the Nellie Johnson and was owed money. Like he, CV, McCormick owed CV money. And so that's why these charges got dropped was because maybe this was a little bit more complicated than him just. Than McCormick like claimed it to be. Yes. Um, uh, he actually will claim later on in his life that he was acting as a federal and marshal. And by he, you mean CV. CV was saying that he, in fact, at the time was being a federal marshal acting. Yes. yes. There's absolutely no record that he was still employed by the Bureau <laughs> of Indian Affairs, but he claims he was. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> um, and then the logbook with the Tuscarero. So we talked about this kind of grand adventure, you know, in the cover of darkness, they chase the wanderer and then it ends yes. with cannon fire and boarding the ship um so the tuscarero which is the ship that pursued the wanderer um actually describes in their logbook the arrest um first of all there was no cannon shot they did not fire any cannons there was also not a chase pretty much as soon as cv saw the ship he docked let them board came willingly now typically we trust completely these logbooks as fact However, they may not have told the whole story either, but we will go with historic record here yes. and say, likely, no cannon fire happened. Yes. Well, and, you know, it's also because the captain of the Tuscarero kind of, uh, I think, saw CV as a challenge. So, you know, it might have been one of those things that he wanted to maybe to the media. Yeah. Thumped up the story a little bit, or he... you know how media is too. They got to tell us a good story to sell newspapers, so that could have all been media driven. Yeah, shocker. <laughs> media sometimes makes things a little bit more uh, yeah. flowery. And we'll see that. In sorry, I said the Chicago Tribune earlier. It was the Chicago Daily News. They are the ones that often get blamed for this embellishment. You know, oh, trying, gee. trying to not sell the media, that. Abby. Trying to make it a little bit more interesting. But like I said, CV claimed he was innocent of piracy and called all officials involved liars. Um, he also claimed, as I mentioned, to be working as a marshal at the time. No evidence to support his claim. But he never fully admits to, to the charges of piracy. Or Of course not. I wouldn't either. <laughs> but CV doesn't really have the best of luck. Um, because then in the Great Lakes Storm of 1913... Um, this storm was real devastating. It killed 250 people, destroyed 19 ships, um, and damages, it cost $5 million then, and today it would cost about $123 million Yeah, today. I mean, the ships were expensive, the cargo was worth a lot. This is a well-known storm that really affected a lot of the shipping on the Great Lakes at that time. 
Yeah. And so one of those ships that went down was Seavey's. He was on a ship called the Harvey Ransom. So he's had a few ships, by the way, in his in, you know yes. in his time period. And if you guys listened to my podcast, we talked about um, my podcast on the Christmas tree ship. We kind of talked about how captains don't always own full the full ship. They own pieces of it gotcha. and sail it. And ships sometimes have expiration dates, you know. They do. Sometimes Got- people have expiration dates, too. Yeah. <laughs> we all have an expiration knows. date. <laughs> um, but he was trying to deliver hay to Fayette Harbor. Of course he was. <laughs> and the hull was damaged in the storm and water came pouring in. Luckily, CV and his crew were able to abandon ship and get to shore. But the ship was sunk. You couldn't do anything. Um, At and- first, though... It was reported that CV had perished. Oh no, this is a different incident. Oh, just kidding. So, just this, kidding. This is this is two years later. There's reports that CV dies in Fayette, Michigan, and he was claimed to have burned to death. Oh, okay. And we, I'm using the word "claimed" here because at the time he was very much alive. That is so interesting. But what had happened was, so at this time, he's living in this area, owns a house, and it's attached to this sawmill. And so some of his friends, James Brody and Lucas Mercer, ask him to help him load this schooner. And they're loading it with different lumber equipment. And so he does this, and then he goes, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to bed. I'm going to go take a nap. And... Yes, there may have been some drinking involved by all three parties. (laughs) Uh, Of course. Because that's going to come into play later. But the fire starts at the sawmill. And as I said, it's like right next to his house. Like they're pretty much connected. And so Brody, his friend, comes to him and and wakes him up, you know, says, you know, there's a fire. We need to get out of here. And so CV, who you think would just maybe like leave the house, instead... Jumps out the window two stories up and lies there unconscious. So he's alive. He's out of the fire. But I don't know if that's the way I would have escaped. Oh, good old Dan Seavey. Like I said, there may have been some alcohol Well, by taking a nap, we might mean passed out on the bed. (laughs) Yes. Okay. But Brody, in his heroics in the house, was trapped. And he does die in the He does not jump out the window. No. Okay. But he stays in the house and burns to death. Yes. And I'm a little questioning if your friend jumped out the window, why you wouldn't jump out the window with I'm just him. saying. That is a little interesting. Okay. But bottom line is Brody stays in the house or gets trapped in the house, can't get out the window. And he perishes. Yes. Mercer, on, on the other hand, he's attempting to save the RP Manson. Ma- Mason. RP Mason. So this is a ship? This is the ship they had loaded. Got it. And this is close enough to the house in the mill that it catches on fire. Yes, because the dock isn't that far from this sawmill. So he runs out to the dock, which has partially caught on fire, and he's trying to push the boat out to sea. Or not to sea, to the lake. Yeah. But get it out of the dock, hopefully save it from the fire. However, he he had also been drinking. So he, in this attempt, falls into the water and drowns. Okay, so we have three friends drinking. Two of them are now dead. CV's lying on the ground unconscious next to a burning uh, house, mill, and possible boat. Wow. Okay. So at the time, some people thought he had murdered his friends. 
just because of his kind of reputation oh boy. being in the middle. And as I said, there was a couple things that is a little bit sketchy. But those were pretty serious accusations. Yes. And there was no proof ever given, and there was no reason why he would kill his friends. Um, and I believe someone actually goes on trial for it instead. I think there was some business dealings of trying to Maybe set the fire. Maybe someone set the fire. Yes. Okay. And so this is like a little bit of a, like I said, sketchy situation. It's unlikely CV is the one who was behind it, but because of his reputation, people kind of look at and him and go. because his two buddies died and yeah. they needed someone to blame. So he didn't really have the best of luck in, towards the end of his pirating Well, he didn't adventure, get arrested for murder. so that's Which is pretty lucky. Um, but in 1923, he purchases land in Gooley's Harbor Garden Peninsula. And this is the same area um, where the sawmill incident had occurred. And he buys a sportsman's club. And the reason I mentioned earlier, I said, we need to remember that his first wife, Mary, changed her last name to Silver. Because there is documents on this transaction that Mary Silver is waiving her rights to purchase uh, to um, to the property that was purchased by John Silver, who, who is, is possibly AKA Dan Seavey. Dan Seavey changed his name yes. to get away with some or to, to buy things maybe to, he has a reputation, maybe this new name allows him to... Well, I think there are times that he was using John Silver on other That's documents. Like an alias. Yes. Yeah. And so there's questions about whether they possibly were back together at this point. It's also um, thought that maybe John Silver is like after the fictional character Long John Silver from Treasure Island, which is interesting, right? Because of this whole, is he a pirate? Is he not? Is he, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of almost the wink and a nudge, you know? Yeah. Not, he spends his life d denouncing his piracy, but then uses but this he likes, alias. But he likes the legend that it has created, maybe. Yes. And so he eventually retires from sailing in his 60s, and he took, takes up residence in Martha Champ Weed's boarding house in Escanaba, Michigan. And between 1930 and 1940, he lives with his daughter, Josephine, in several different communities in Michigan and Wisconsin. But he dies in Peshtigo, Wisconsin in 1949 and is buried near Marinette. Um, and this is kind of what I mentioned. In later life, he is known for always carrying around a Bible and being a religious man. So maybe he found Jesus and changed his life and... Uh, realized maybe the things in his past were not uh, so good and he needs to repent and move on and, you know, whatever. So that's really interesting. So Dan Seavey lived a pretty eventful life. Oh, yeah. Lots of ups, mostly downs. And, uh, you know, we've heard of Peshtigo, Wisconsin before if you're a Wisconsin history buff because there was a huge fire that happened in Oh, Peshtigo. and that will most definitely be a podcast All in the right, future. a little preview of what's to come. Yeah. But I think, and it's up to you guys to decide, you know, what is true and what is false when it comes to Dan CV. I personally would say he's somewhere in the middle of all the stories that is told. I'm not sure he was maybe the religious man he wished to portray himself at the end of his life, at least his entire life. But 
I'm not sure he's also out there murdering and causing as much chaos as maybe some of the stories. But definitely someone to... Definitely a known figure, though, in the Great Lakes shipping community and port towns. Yeah. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you, CJ, for being my co-host for the day. Happy to be here. Yeah. So if you guys liked this episode, please share it with your friends and family. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Facebook at Badgerland Journal Stories of Wisconsin. You can find us on Instagram at Badgerland Journal. And if you want to send us an email, you know, just tell us if you liked the podcast, give us some comments or suggestions of what maybe we should do next. You can send us an email at badgerlandjournal at gmail.com. Otherwise, I hope you guys keep it cheesy.